You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's version of Healthcare Visions. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening on America's Web Radio. Today I want to take and present some information that I listened to from Mark Levine. I want to interview him and let him answer some questions about COVID and some of the other major issues around what's going on in the United States. I know that his biggest issue right now is the corruption of the media, the use of propaganda, not news, especially by the administration in collusion with the media. And he presents some good information about how propaganda actually works to the harm of individual citizens by distorting and presenting information that's just not true, that leads us to policy decisions that are just not advantageous to the American citizen. So there's a book called Propaganda. And Mark, why don't you tell us about this book and its impacts? This book by Edward Bernays, it's called Propaganda. This book was the original book on the subject of propaganda. All kinds of people read this book. Franklin Roosevelt read this book. Uh, Bernays advised Woodrow Wilson, uh, who put together one of the biggest propaganda efforts by a president in American history, and many have followed since. You know who else read this book? Adolf Hitler and Goebbels. Um, all kinds of people. Because this book talks about how to control the masses, how to communicate to the masses, how the minority can control the majority. Um, and it is uh, all about psychology. It's all about graphics and images. It's all about storylines. And this is exactly what we're getting today from the Biden administration. It's you can even keep up with what they're doing. This is not the way a republic is supposed to conduct itself. You're supposed to slow down. Things are supposed to be deliberative. There's supposed to be various branches and individuals within the branches of the government who have an opportunity to look at things that are taking place. Not a mad rush, a bum's rush to institute as much radical, tyrannical agenda as possible. Mark, that's an interesting observation that propaganda has taken over so strongly it's hard to know what's truth. And we've heard so much about fake news for so long. But, you know, this program is typically about health care. Can you talk about an example of propaganda and, let's say, the uh, COVID um, issues that's going on in this country, how that's being handled, how that's being promoted, how that's being discussed, how people are taking credit for it, maybe that aren't uh, involved in it as much as they would um, present, how the administration maybe is saying things that just aren't true. Give us some examples. I want to give you a perfect example. Vaccines. There's a huge propaganda effort underway by the Biden campaign. And they want the American people to believe that Joe Biden was in charge of developing vaccines, distributing vaccines, that there were no vaccines when he came into office. There was no plan to get them. And there was a terrible shortage. As a matter of fact, they couldn't find 20 million of them at some point. And come May, the end of May, everybody who needs or wants a vaccination will get a vaccination, thanks to Joe Biden. The media have refused to unravel this and to tell you the truth. 
Well, I guess um, President Biden forgets that he got a shot before he was inaugurated. I wonder where he thought that that shot uh, came from, uh, what storage area or what lot that was from. Something um, didn't exist, but he and Kamala Harris uh, got their shots, as did many others, including the president and many other uh, high-profile people, just to show that we actually had the shots in place. And he's got to know that the president ordered the manufacturing of those shots even before the uh, final um, results were in as to their effectiveness. So tell me a little bit more. Give me an example of how this has uh, played out in the media. I know that you've read through that um, government accounting office, the GAO report. It kind of really outlined an analysis of the whole uh, Operation Warp Speed process. Give us your insights as to what you uh, found in that report. And I can't spend the whole program on it, but I want to spend this part of the program on it as a perfect example. Did you know that there is a government accounting office report on this subject right here in front of my hands over 50 pages? Do you know that this report that was issued in February is a sterling review, for the most part, of Operation Warp Speed that took place during the Trump administration? Do you know that there have been checks on what Joe Biden has been saying, even by fairly liberal institutions? that have seriously questioned the lies that are coming out of this White House and out of this president's mouth. I'll give you some examples. The Trump administration contracted for 100 million doses from Pfizer, 100 million doses from Moderna, 100 million doses from Johnson & Johnson, 300 million doses from AstraZeneca, 100 million doses from Novavax, and another 100 million doses from uh, GlaxoSmithKline. In other words, a total of 800 million doses before any vaccine had been finally developed, before any vaccine had been approved. 800 million doses, which would be enough for 400 million people. Some of them, of course, require two shots. They did this during the summer, last summer. So they weren't even sure which vaccine would work. But what the Trump administration did, never done in American history before, rather than bet on one or two, it helped subsidize and capitalize all of them. December 23. By December 23, we know that Pfizer and Moderna have vaccines that work. 95% effective. They announced it days after the election, as if holding back the information. Absolutely outrageous. Now, on December 23, when the Trump administration realized that only Pfizer and only Moderna had received emergency authorization, the Trump administration went in and ordered another 200 million doses from both companies. The problem is the companies can only produce so many, not because of screw-ups or anything like that, but to gain access to the elements and the materials, to gain access to the expertise, the employees, to ramp up that high. And they're not only competing with other companies in the United States, as the report points out, they're competing with companies around the world. They're competing with countries around the world. So Trump gave the directive to HHS to figure out ways to get around it, not to get around the science, but to get around the blocks, the bottlenecks and so forth. And they did. And they did. During this period, 
Operation Warp Speed in the Trump administration, as the GAO report points out, you had these companies working together. One of the reasons we were able to do this so quickly is they did things they'd never done before. Rather than myopically staying in their own lane, they started to share information. They even started to share certain tests. And some of them decided to go in different directions when they felt that that different direction might be more beneficial. We have never seen coordination like this before. We had never seen affirmative steps taken by a government like this before. And Joe Biden should know. You're right. Joe Biden should know. He knows the insides of what's happened, what he picked up in this transition to his administration. But more importantly, wasn't he the one in charge of the H1N1 uh, vaccine and development and prevention that occurred a number of years ago and got totally messed up, even by the guy who was in charge under Joe, said it was the most mismanaged project he'd ever been involved in. Because for eight years, he was vice president. And in 2006 and seven, they screwed up on H1N1. They didn't get a vaccine until it was too late. And the vaccine was all was not all that effective in the first place. Well, the media has been presenting to the public that he used the Defense Authorization Act and got uh, companies to work together. But wasn't that all already in the works and set up by President Trump? Since January, January, Johnson and Johnson was coordinating with Merck. The Biden administration comes out and said that they caused this to happen. They caused nothing to happen. Since January, Johnson & Johnson was coordinating with Merck. Why? Because Johnson & Johnson knew it had a vaccine that would work, but it didn't have enough facilities. It didn't have enough manpower to produce as many as the Trump administration had contracted for. So they worked out a deal, these two companies, Johnson & Johnson with Merck, to increase production, to increase their capacity, and to do it as quickly as possible. In the end... The Trump administration had contracted for enough approved vaccines, approved vaccines from the three vaccines to inoculate 550 million people, to inoculate everyone in the United States. That's the trajectory we're on. So when Joe Biden announces the other day that he's ordering hundreds of millions of more vaccines because we're at war we're at war with this with this horrible this horrible virus and we'll have enough to give to other countries joe biden isn't doing anything that isn't already being done and that has already been in the in the works where the trajectory is already taking off he hasn't done anything anything different and so we get this propaganda and in order to promote his really non-activity or his minimal contribution to vaccinating the American people, they lie. They put on these phony press conferences where he comes out and speaks and then leaves and somebody else speaks. And most of all, they have to degrade and denigrate Donald Trump, his administration, and Operation Warp Speed in order to promote themselves. I would encourage you to get the GAO report yourself. I would encourage members of the media who just regurgitate What the Biden administration says, why don't you read something? Why don't you look into it? Why don't you look into the KHN and PolitiFact healthcare check? And PolitiFact is liberal, from which I just reviewed and saw all this information. The fact of the matter is, 
We have vaccinations going on across this country, more and more vaccine being produced, more and more the ability to distribute it thanks to the infrastructure and the decisions that were made really about nine months ago, 10 months ago by President Trump. Wouldn't it be sweet if some serious news operator, if they asked him where he got the idea to do things that prior presidents, prior administrations never did, like the pre-funding and purchasing of hundreds and hundreds of millions of vaccines? What is it exactly that his administration did, HHS taking the lead to coordinate with these private companies? And by the way, to coordinate with the Department of Defense, some of you are getting vaccines from the National Guard. That also was put in place by the Trump administration. So I am not going to allow the propagandists in the White House, the propagandist Joe Biden, to lie his way into the history books and lie his way into the hearts and minds of the American people when he has done effectively nothing significant or concrete to change what was already in place. Well, Mark, why don't you tell us what you really think and believe about this Biden administration and the use of propaganda? Anyway, I really appreciate all the information and commentary that's made on life, liberty, and Levine, of which this uh, section of my presentation has drawn. I hope that you'll stay with us as we take a commercial break and come back, and we'll hear a little bit more of Mark Levine and his comments about a number of issues including more on COVID. Be right back. Hey, guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today, we're talking about covid and we're picking out segments from Life, Liberty, and Levine because he talked in very clear terms about this COVID bill, the propaganda that's being used by the administration to take credit for something they have no business taking credit for. But we want in this segment to delve into what it is that's really in the bill. So, Mark, tell us about the bill We've all heard the $1.9 billion, but let's get into details about what's actually contained in this bill. $1.9 trillion to fight the virus. But we're already fighting the virus. We're already wrestling it to the ground. And 
the vaccines are in place, the distribution's in place. So what exactly do we need $1.9 trillion for? Well, the Democrats are saying that this is the greatest expansion of government, the greatest spending in American history. It is the greatest progressive bill ever. And it should be since Bernie Sanders wrote it. And notice Bernie Sanders is celebrating. Mark, tell us some of the specific dollar amounts that are in this bill and what it's going for, because we don't hear the details on the national news. We just hear that everybody's going to get $1,400 a person and that it's going to expand the um, unemployment benefits, all the good stuff, if you will. But we don't hear about the majority of the bill and what those dollars are going to and maybe uh, how wasteful they might be if they are. So you've been looking into this. Give us the details and give us the numbers as you see them. Now, what's in this bill? $362 billion in direct aid to state and local governments. Okay, so they're paying off mostly blue states and blue cities for being disasters before the virus. And in fact, New York and San Francisco and L.A. are all celebrating, saying, hey, we don't have a budget deficit anymore. They just blew out our budget deficit. Yeah, think about that. $168 billion to assist educational institutions. No, to assist unions. Why do we need $168 billion when they already have $60 billion sitting there? How much does it cost to distance six feet from each other and to wear a paper mask and even to put those plastic things in between people? I don't think it costs $168 billion. $53.6 billion to assist small businesses. I have no idea what that means. $39 billion for child care block grants to states. $27.8 billion for emergency rental assistance and housing vouchers. You know what would fix all this? Capitalism, an open economy. $10 billion for homeowners assistance. You can see this as a massive slush fund. $5 billion for assistance to individuals experiencing homelessness. $92 billion for the Health and Human Services Department. Additional $92 billion. Why? To help subsidize Obamacare. $47.8 billion for testing and contract tracing. Why do we need $50 billion for testing and contract tra- tracing? $7.5 billion for vaccine administration and distribution. Uh, six point, what happened to the $4.1 trillion we already spent for that? $6.1 billion uh, for vaccine and therapeutic development, manufacturing and procurement. $7.6 billion to expand public health workforce. $7.6 billion for community health centers. I thought we had Walmart and we had um, uh, all these pharmaceutical companies. Why do we need federal distribution centers? And by the way, we have federal facilities everywhere. Why do we need new federal distribution centers? $6.1 billion for Native American health programs. $3 billion for substance abuse and mental health block grant programs. Provides $50 billion for FEMA. billion for veterans health care services, 10 billion for emergency medical supply production, 8.7 billion for COVID-19 health response efforts overseas. Extends federal unemployment compensation benefits. The federal government never used to pay uh, for unemployment benefits. Now on top of the states, $300 per week through September 6, 2021. An additional tax rebate of $1,400 for individuals with incomes of $75,000 or less and couples with incomes of $150,000 or less. 
expands eligibility massively and increases the maximum earned income tax credit for childless adults and increase the child tax credit to $3,000 per child if they're over seven years old, $3,600 per child if they're under seven years old, expands and extends through September 2021 paid sick and family leave tax credits for employers, requires Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program to fully cover the cost of vaccines, and it goes on and on and on. Thanks, Mark. I now want to bring in another expert that was on Levine's program, uh, Mr. Daniel Horowitz, has been really studying this bill, this uh, coronavirus uh, bill, this uh, $1.9 trillion package, and... Daniel, tell us, give us a macro, a big overview of what this bill is really doing to the overall economy and the way its incentives are moving towards maybe areas that were completely mismanaged by certain states and that this money is kind of filling in the gaps for that, that it's really a, a, a blue state bill that uh, makes the red states who have been efficient uh, pay for the fact that they were doing the right things and the other states were not. It kind of equalizes everything, I believe, is the way the analysis goes. But give me give me your thoughts on this on this bill. Take it into totality, this is really the Obamacare of every industry and every aspect of our life. In other words, it means two things. It means, number one, making Americans 100% dependent on government for health care, education, housing, you name it. And number two, it means what we do in the American tradition of socialism. We have venture socialism. It's funneled through all the special interests, the healthcare cartel, the education cartel that are monopolizing their respective industries, boxing out private enterprise. And the thing is, it rewards all of the players who went and subverted our liberties, actually made the virus response worse. It punishes the states that were freer and actually spent their money on things that worked to arrest the spread of the virus and to, you know, uh, vaccinate the seniors like Ron DeSantis is. This equalized all of the states in one. Daniel, thank you for that um, broad overview. It has significant implications for our entire economy. Now, give us a little bit of an insight as to the impact it has on us as individuals, as families, as does it create a dependency on government that we've never had before? Is there something permanent in this that's going to continue to send money from the federal government back to individuals and families? What's the impact on this country as we as individuals see the impact and the flow of funds out of this bill. And then when you get to the individual subsidies and in the tax codes and as well as the rebates, here's the thing. It's too much and too little at the same time. If you're someone who had a very successful small business, earned $200,000 a year as a family two years ago, but now you've been wiped out, you don't get any Fifth Amendment just compensation. You get nothing. But if you're someone just under that income level, this is your third round of checks. And coupled with the child tax credits, between everything, you can get people that gain fifteen to $20,000. Again, this makes all middle-income Americans completely dependent on government 
in perpetuity. Well, let's bring in Mark Levine again. Mark, give us your analysis of what you've been hearing from uh, Daniel Horowitz and your take on what's really going on here with this massive so-called American relief bill and what it's doing in terms of paying off uh, Democratic uh, special interest groups and tying more and more people into a subsidy from the federal government so that they're going to look for more and more into the future as well as what's being built in to this existing legislation. It's an amazing thing. We have unemployment around 6%, give or take. We have predictions of the next quarter GDP of going up as high as potentially 10%. Clearly, the economy is breaking open because some of these states are opening up more and the American people are desperate to work, desperate to save, desperate to buy things and catch up with their lives and so forth. And then on top of that, to do something like this, to use the virus to use people who who were suffering and are suffering as an opportunity to empower the central government to give billions and billions of dollars to failed Democrat mayors and failed Democrat governors to run these funds through the same damn bureaucracy that has failed us each and every time, enhancing their power and so forth. And they have, waiting in the wings, massive tax increases to punish the private sector, massive regulations... Critical theory, whether it's race or gender, to impose on the nation and so forth, keeping so many of our schools still closed. And yet they say they stand for the people. They stand for the people. They stand for big government and they stand for the Democrat Party. So, Gary, come back in and give some overview of the impact on uh, businesses and how governments are going to react and have to respond to things that are in this bill that allow them or disallow them from taking action with the monies that they're going to get, especially those red states that have done the right job. They've got surpluses, but they're going to get more money out of this bill, not as much as the blue states, but can they use that as some states like West Virginia governor said the other day, he'd like to be able to take that money and um, lower taxes in that state. Is that even a possibility? When you stimulate something, you get more of it. If you stimulate growth, you'll get growth. If you stimulate shutdowns, you'll get more shutdowns. This works against the small business owners because it, again, encourages more people not to work rather than seek employment. And you would think with all of the extra funds, as you noted, some of the states have over $100 billion left over. They don't know what to do with it, so they might want to cut state taxes. This bill precludes them from cutting those taxes, and they have to use them on all these special interest handouts. So every state that takes a dime of this money, every city that takes a dime of this money, is prohibited from cutting taxes. Absolutely incredible. So there you've heard it, audience, directly from Mark Levine and the experts on this bill. What you didn't hear on the news in the evening from David Muir to any of the others on the other channels, they didn't tell you that this money has to go to special interests. They didn't tell you that this money can't be used to lower income taxes in states that have been doing the right thing all along. The federal government's going to hand out money to special interests. Can that money be rediverted if it's not needed in those areas to actually lower income taxes? Well, we now know that that's not even possible. What a strange bill to put in. What a strange approach to Democrats who think they want to help people and help states. 
certainly doesn't prove true at the end of the day with type of bill that they passed. Well, let's take another break, and we'll be right back. You're on America's Web Radio, and you've been listening to Healthcare Insight. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the third segment of... Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about the coronavirus uh, bill that was passed, a $1.9 trillion bill, the boondoggle, a payoff to liberal left-wing organizations and left-wing states that have mismanaged the coronavirus, have shut down businesses, have kept people from making a living, have restricted people from being able to get together to go to church or to go see a movie or to eat in a restaurant, even if it's outside in some states. So what we want to talk about now is really what's the overall impact to the economy and what's happening with schools, what's happening with the budget deficit. So what I want to do at this point is basically turn it over to uh, Mark Levine uh, to give some of his comments, and then, Mark, if you will – lead up with some questionings for uh, Dave Horowitz because I think there's some really good insights that our audience here would get from the presentation that you made on Life, Liberty, and Levine uh, that I'm really uh, taking uh, much of this audio uh, from. So I certainly want to give credit to um, Fox News and Mark Levine's program for being able to offer up these ideas and for me to sort of splice in thoughts and comments and questions of my own. So, Mark, take this over and give us some thoughts in this third segment. They have the slimmest of majorities in the House, 10 representatives, meaning if they had lost six more seats, Kevin McCarthy would be Speaker. It's the thinnest majority in a century. They have no majority in the Senate. It's 50-50, but for the vice president sitting as the president of the Senate, where she can break the vote, they wouldn't have the votes. With They have no mandate whatsoever. Every Republican that ran for re-election won. And so what they're doing here is they're running for the gaps as fast as they can, doing whatever they can to impose their will on the American people. What else does this bill do? And in the end, what will this do to the debt in future generations? Thanks for reminding us, Mark, that they have a slimmest majority, but they have enough of a majority, enough power, enough groupthink on the Democratic side that we don't have any real moderate Democrats that are going to slow this train down. And while they have the time, while they have the votes, uh, they're going to rush through whatever they can, every liberal program, every change that they can make. And relying on uh, uh, a mansion to be able to slow their own train down, I don't think it's going to happen. He never really votes against the Democrats. The only thing he stood up for is he says he's not going to let them get rid of the filibuster. And he said out of that $1.9 trillion bill 
that, in fact, they um, were not going to allow for the $15 minimum wage hike. But, of course, the parliamentarian ruled against that anyway that was not relevant to the bill. What we do know is that Manchin put in and was part of a group that put in this idea that states cannot use any of these funds to lower their own taxes. And his home state of West Virginia, the governor has said that's what he wanted to do, and he holds it against Joe Manchin for supporting that part of the bill. So I'm hoping that that Republican governor of West Virginia runs against Manchin in the next few years, and we can turn that seat in the Senate seat into a Republican as the whole state of West Virginia has been Republican for a good while. Now let's turn back to David Horowitz. David, tell us about the impact on children, the future deficit, and the real problems that we haven't talked about already that are underlying this entire bill and the danger it poses uh, fiscally to the country. Well, one of the most egregious things in this bill, and really what has been done by these same players all year, is what has been done to children. Uh, This virus, we knew from day one, was never a threat to them. It is less severe than the flu for children. Uh, We learned very early on they are not primary vectors of spread. There is reams of data showing that schools were never uh, a problem in terms of the teachers and certainly not for the kids. And yet they continue to hold out, and the teachers' unions block them from going back to school. And even where they do go to school, they go to school in this dystopian environment that's full of fear and anxiety, the masking for seven hours when there's no science behind the masking of children. And yet this bill dumps $168 billion on top of the tens of billions that the education cartel already has. And there's no requirement that they have to open school, even with all the money being given to open school, when, of course, there is no uh, necessity to even spend any money. You just open up. There's no threat. So that is really one of the most egregious portions of this bill. And then we're taking those same children that we are now abusing this entire year with fear and anxiety and removing from them all their opportunities to play sports and life experiences. We're saddling them with the very debt from this very bill. Mark, you've been concerned about the Democratic Party's impact on children for a long time, not just around the uh, coronavirus and school shutdowns, but what they're doing to increase the deficit for the future burden that's on the children. And the way the Democratic Party is just pushing through things that are only for their party without looking out for the entire country, whether it's children or adults. Give us some of your final comments, if you will, on this entire process of the power grab of the Democratic Party and what they're really doing to many people, including children in this country. You look at what the Democrat Party has done to our children. You look at what the Democrat Party has done to immigrants, uh, people trying to get into this country illegally, and what's going on in the southern border, both what's happening to Americans and people trying to get in here. You look at what the Democrat Party is doing to future generations by destroying the future economies. In other words, we're spending their money. We don't have trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to spend a day. The Democrat Party is very hostile to children, hostile to real immigration, hostile to the American people. The Democrat Party, as I keep saying, is about the Democrat Party. Everything it's doing in this bill, in these endless executive orders, with H.R. 1, 
SR1 is about empowering the Democrat Party, making this country California and a one-party state forevermore. David, give us some of your final thoughts on this whole package. Is this assault on our liberties, on how the Democratic Party is using this opportunity as a power grab with the slimmest majorities, as uh, Mark Levine has said, but they still are going to take advantage. There doesn't seem to be any moderate Democrats that are willing to stand up to this craziness of adding, adding burden onto our children, adding deficits, adding spending that's wasteful. It's not spending that's being an investment that's going to create any growth in the economy that comes back to the federal government in forms of taxes or increased business activity uh, so that there's taxes on those profits or jobs created that people can have a better living. There doesn't seem to be any of that. It seems to be a bill that's just giving out money to um, liberal nonprofit organizations and to groups that really don't uh, create a lot of addition to our gross domestic product. What are your thoughts about all this as we move forward into these final stages of getting this uh, bill implemented? It's been passed, and so we have not, not much hope there, but what's going to happen from your perspective with this wasteful spending you look at everything in totality. You look at the assault on our fundamental liberties. You put COVID in a sentence with a noun and a verb, and suddenly our government could do anything they want to us. They bankrupt us. They destroy our borders. They release criminals from prison under the same guise of protecting us from a viral spread. Notice the same pattern that they're accomplishing everything they've always wanted to do for years under the guise of fighting this virus. I really think that the federal government has become irremediably broken. Let me jump in right there. If the federal government is so broken, so messed up with this power grab that's going on, how do we as conservatives, as people responsible for spending money wisely in our own families that want to bring some sense and sensitivity to the federal government, how do we make any change in this current environment? What's the strategy that we should be following to try to blunt some of this craziness that's going on and to get us back to some level of sanity? I think some of the key strategies that we're going to have to look at is looking at the states where Republicans control 31 state legislatures, 19 of them with super majorities. They have 24 trifecta controls of government. This is really where conservatives and Republicans need to step up to the plate and start serving as a check and balance on the run amok federal government. Mark, there's a lot of things I'd like for you to wrap us up. I thought we were finished, but these ideas are just so compelling. Would you come back in and tell our audience what you see going on and what the problems are with this administration, not just what we've talked about so far, but maybe some additional thoughts as to the danger of what's really going on, our loss of liberty, our loss of freedoms, that this administration, this Biden administration, and this radical progressive socialist government seems to be trying to impose on us at every turn. Give us your final thoughts. You know, propaganda takes many forms. It also includes censorship and omission, failure to communicate with the American people about what you're actually doing. Over 50 executive orders and executive actions. Tell me, how many news departments in this country have actually taken the time to go through each one of these executive orders? 
How many of us have time to read each of these executive orders? Yet these executive orders are issued like legislation, and they're a directive to two million bureaucrats on what they're expected to do. A clear violation of separation of powers. These are substantive pieces of legislation issued by a president of the United States in violation of the Constitution, and nobody seems to give a damn. And what else are they planning on doing? In addition to destroying our economy, in addition to putting as many people on the welfare roll, throwing money left and right, so your children and grandchildren and generations yet born are going to bear the responsibility and the burden of all the profligate spending that's going on today, what's next? The House is passing a bill to give everything the big labor bosses want. What's next? Gun control. Two bills coming up from the House of Representatives. What's next? What's next? What isn't next? It's all about your liberty. They're trampling all over the Constitution of the United States with the barest and the thinnest of majorities in Congress. The president of the United States, who doesn't even know who his secretary of defense is or where the Pentagon is, signing one document after another. This is not what the American Republic is supposed to be. And yes, in a lawful way, we will resist. What a great summary. We will resist. Yes, we're going to all do our part. We're going to all have to do our part in order to stop this train from running over all of us and turning this country into a socialist environment where everybody is dependent on the federal government in one way, shape, or form. Well, let's take another break. We've got one more segment to go, and I want to change topics a little bit, but it'll all be related. So hang with us. We're going to come back. You're on America's Web Radio, and this is Ron Bachman and Healthcare Insight. We will be right back. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hey, guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside, and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This hour we've been talking about the Democratic abuses in this COVID bill to take and control more power. This last segment, I want to expand that whole discussion on the abuse of power and the power grab that's going on with this administration. And the most important thing that they put forward is what they call H.R. 1 and S. 1. Those are bills that the incoming administration thinks are the most important things to pass, and it wasn't the COVID bill. It was how to change our election laws to favor Democrats into perpetuity. So I'm going to turn over this section entirely to Mark Levine and his guests that he'll introduce. And I hope that you listen carefully. This audience needs to know and listen to the details of how the Democrats are about to take over this country by changing voter election laws. Take it over, Mark. We have a wonderful guest, Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, who's one of the country's great experts on voting in this country, given the fact that he's worked in that field in the federal government. 
in Republican administrations. Now, Hans, they keep pushing this HR1, SR1. Right. Stacey Abrams is all over cable TV saying if you oppose this, you oppose minority voting. Joe Biden has said that this is a throwback to Jim Crow. They are using propaganda, the most divisive, uh, inflammatory propaganda that they can think of. I have a different take. This is a wholesale attack on the franchise against every single American in this country, regardless of race, regardless of where they live. What is your take on this? And please go through the proposal so the American people know what's going on here. First of all, calling what Biden and others saying propaganda is exactly right. Uh, what this bill does is, first of all, it's a federalization, a takeover, a nationalization of the running of elections, which has been done by the states since our founding. And what it is intended to do is to destroy the security of the election process. Um, it has provisions all throughout it that get rid of the basic safety and security protocols that states have put in place uh, and then has all these mandates it imposes on the states that will uh, make things even worse. Basically take all of the worst things that happened in last year's election, cement them into federal law, and then make things even worse. I mean, just a couple of examples. Look, it's a big bill, 800 pages. But to give you just a couple of examples, um, this, this bill would basically gut state voter ID laws across the country. Every state would have to allow a person to vote if they simply sign a form saying, yeah, I am who I claim I am. So, uh, Mark, if you went into a polling place and claimed you were Hans von Spakovsky, uh, they couldn't ask you for an ID as long as you signed a form saying, oh, yeah, I'm Hans von Spakovsky. They have to let you to vote. Combine this with the fact that they require states to put in same-day voter registration. States have to allow people to uh, walk into a polling place on Election Day, register, and immediately vote. Since they can't ask you for an ID, again, uh, anybody could walk into any polling place anywhere in the country using a fake name and a fake address. They have to be allowed to register. They can vote. Uh, no, election officials can't prevent that. And then you can walk out of the polling place and go do it again elsewhere. I mean, that's that's what the combination of that uh, brings in. They also want to destroy any and all security with absentee ballots. And remember, absentee ballots are the most vulnerable ballots to being stolen or altered or changed. And so they got a whole series of things. First of all, uh, every state around the nation has to send an absentee ballot request form to every registered voter. If a registered voter uh, wants to be put on a permanent absentee ballot list, uh, all they have to do is request it once, and from then on, in every future election, a ballot will simply be mailed to them. That is a terrible process because um, voter registration rolls are in such bad shape across the country. So you're basically going to have millions of ballots arriving at the homes of people who no longer live there, who have died, uh, and those ballots could fall in the hands of people who might actually vote them. By the way, uh, you know, a lot of states, very smartly, have a witness signature requirement on absentee ballots. Again, that that's a wise policy because with a witness, you've got somebody who can authenticate that it was actually the voter who filled out and signed the ballot. No state would be able to enforce a witness signature requirement on an absentee ballot. And this ballot would override 
any state's law that prevents vote trafficking. Um, you know, in about half the states, places like North Carolina, they prohibit third-party strangers from showing up at a voter's door to say, hey, I'll, I'll deliver your ballot for you. Again, that's a wise policy because it prevents candidates and campaign staffers and political consultants, all of whom have a stake in the outcome of the election, from being able to get their hands on a, a voter's ballot. You, 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 you will recall that's exactly what happened in 2018 in the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina. A political consultant and his staff who've been criminally charged were picking up people's ballots, altering them, changing them, forging them. And the reason that came to light was because that kind of vote trafficking is prohibited in North Carolina. That's how folks found out about it. That would now have to be legal in every state. So Democrats want party activists and political consultants to be able to get their hands on absentee ballots. Um, You know, voter rolls, as I said, are in notoriously bad shape across the country, and this has numerous provisions to make it even harder for states to clean up their voter rolls, to compare their voter rolls with other states to find people who are registered in more than one state, to use the U.S. Postal Service's national change of address system to find people who have uh, uh, registered or in, in other states or have moved. And another thing it does is it requires states to put in automatic voter registration. In other words, uh, every state agency that you, as a resident state, may have an interaction with, whether it's a welfare office, a DMV office, um, a state college or university will then have to automatically register you to vote without asking you. And the law even includes federal agencies. There's a whole list of federal agencies that are going to have to send data on the people that they think are residents of a particular state to state officials to automatically register them. Look, Mark, you know what that's going to lead to. It's going to lead to multiple duplicate registrations of the same person, multiple registrations of people in different states, and it's going to lead to the registration of people who aren't eligible to vote, like non-citizens. But states aren't going to have any choice about that. They're going to have to do this. It requires every state to allow open, wide, online voter registration. Look, some states have put in online voter registration, but they limit it to folks on whom the state already has a record. In other words, for example, if you have a driver's license in a state, they've already checked your ID. They've already checked your identification documents. Um, and they, states will allow you to also then register to vote online. This bill would allow anyone to register online, which, as you know, is going to open up the voter registration system to hackers and cyber criminals and could lead to massive voter registration fraud. These Democrats are not acting on behalf of the country. They're acting on behalf of their party. Everything they do, whether it's spending, whether it's critical race or critical gender theory, whether it's open borders, it's to empower the Democrat Party. And this is the core of it. Change the voting system. Get rid of all the protections against fraud. Why? Because apparently they think it benefits them mightily. Trehan's. Their bill does not talk about the registration and voting of citizens. It talks about individuals, which opens the door wide to illegal aliens, as do these lists where you're not actually allowed to really fix these lists. And as people vote under this legislation, as I understand it, 
a, uh, for instance, an election judge in a precinct really is not free to challenge somebody voting because they can be criminally charged. Moreover, as I understand it, you don't have to vote in your own precinct. You can vote in another precinct if you choose right. to do that. They want to register 16 and 17 year olds uh, who uh, would actually be able to vote, given the fact that there's no serious uh, ability to challenge their votes or to prevent them from voting. Is that correct? Yeah, unfortunately, that is correct. Those are all provisions in this bill that would make it, frankly, very easy for people who aren't actually eligible eligible to vote to actually vote and get away with it. Felons who haven't even finished their terms, they would have the right to vote. Uh, Mail-in voting would be mandatory in every state, and the counting can take up to 10 days under this federal law, so the outcome would be delayed for 10 days. Right. Um, And there's other things in here, too, but they set up a special commission, which they say is intended to promote and defend democratic institutions. And this commission has members placed on it who have the power to force judges who have ruled on this statute or ruled on voting under this statute, force them to come to Washington, D.C., and explain themselves. So you would actually have judges reporting to a commission, and you would have individuals who might raise constitutional questions about this law or issues related to elections under this law, and they could only come to one place to bring their lawsuit, a district court in Washington, D.C., and most of these claims would all be joined together. This entire thing, Hans, is set up for the Democrat Party. It undermines the franchise. And then when you watch Democrats say that this is intended to promote voting And anyone who opposes it opposes minorities from voting. How in any way does this prevent minorities from voting? That is, objecting to a law like this that would destroy the franchise across the board. Does it have anything to do with minorities? No, it it doesn't at all. In fact, it will disenfranchise. This bill, if passed, will disenfranchise all voters, including uh, minority voters. I mean, look, just one quick example out of what you were just talking about. Um, look, it has been a tradition in, in America for uh, forever that you are supposed to vote in the precinct to which you've been assigned. There's a good reason for that. First, that way uh, officials know how many ballots should be in each precinct, because if you don't know how many people are going to show up, uh, you may run out of ballots and people may not be able to vote. Second, uh, it, it ensures that you get the ballot that allows you to vote for to vote for everybody you're entitled to vote for, not just nationally, but folks who are running for state and local offices. This bill would require states to allow people to vote outside of their assigned precinct, which means that if you go to a precinct on the other side of a large county where you live, well, yeah, you may be able to vote for president. You may be able to vote for the U.S. senators, but you won't be qualified to vote perhaps for a member of Congress or state legislators or members of the city council. So you are, in effect, giving voters the ability to disenfranchise themselves because they may not realize that. That's why this is just such a bad bill. I mean, it's not just many parts of it are unconstitutional. It's just bad and reckless policy. And I do want to remind the audience that the framers of the Constitution would have vehemently opposed this. They did not yes. believe in all the power going to Washington, D.C. If they did, they would have said so. 
But instead, there are two provisions, and especially Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, that leaves it to state legislatures specifically to write election laws, including as it applies to the selection of a president and vice president of the United States. This would effectively take that provision of the Constitution, Hans, and eliminate it. And eliminate it. Yeah, and look, the reason for that, uh, Mark, as you well know, is they were afraid that if Congress could uh, set out all the rules for federal elections, then what would they do? Well, they would uh, put in rules and laws that would favor them as incumbents and help them retain power in Congress. And that's why I think the framers distributed the power and authority to run federal elections um, uh, down between the federal government and the states. And this bill just totally overrides that. If they get this bill, I dare say that we won't see Republican president in the United States in the rest of our lifetimes. It's part of the reason why the media do not want us to talk about the last election and the violations of the federal constitution, in my view, in several states. And they're trying to turn the events of January 6th which they call an insurrection, which was a violent attack and not an insurrection, into an event that prevents people like you and me on this program from talking about this. But we're going to talk about it. Powerful information, powerful stuff that we all need to know. I know we've run over a little bit on this segment, but it's so important that our audience listen to and understand and even repeat and go back and find out what's in this bill. It will destroy this country But I hope you'll come back next week and maybe we'll find some solutions as we go along together and listen to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. I'm signing off for this week. It's Ron Bachman here. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.